Are we taping? We are taping. So we should uh, we should start by doing this disclaimer. Yes. This, this episode of Hard Call contains harsh language, including the use of multiple ethnic slurs and swear words. Do you want to, do we need to say it's not recommended for children or is it uh, obvious? I think that's obvious. <laughs> you say multiple ethnic it's slurs and swear words. words. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How are you doing? How are you, sir? Jeff Zinn. Carlos, nice to meet you. Carlos, nice to meet you. What do you do, Carlos? I'm a sewing machine mechanic. Are you? Yes, Who I do am. you work for? Anyone? Uh, on my own. I work on my own. Do you? Yes. Good for you. Your business for yourself? Yes, sir. Congratulations. Thank you, Are sir. you doing well? You making uh, money? I just started. I've been working. I just started my business. I just Very worked good. in the garment center for 20 years. So. For 20 years and you I, went out on your own? I Congratulations. Went on my own. I went in the garment center for 31 years and just started business. Are you happy? Are you excited? I am. I am. I've been involved in this business for so long. You just, I mean, I like it, you know. It's my life. It's been my life, so. Congratulations, and I want you to know, if you ever need a favor, if you ever need anything, you come to the 28th floor and you talk to me. If anyone ever gives you trouble, if anyone ever gives you a problem, you come talk to me, okay? Because you know who I got behind me? I got the Lubavitches, I got the rabbis, I got the Jews, I got the Italians, I've got the lesbians, I've got the Haitians, I got the voodoos, I got the 150,000 Chinese employees. You know what I got behind me? I got the power of God. I've got the word. And so do you. I can tell you're a man of God, aren't you? Absolutely. Absolutely you are. And a man of God is a man of God to me. It doesn't matter if you're Chinese, Jewish, Arabian. I don't care what you are as long as you believe in God. As long as you don't try to hurt people, as long as you're a good person, you're on my team. You're on my side. And I'll protect anybody who believes that. You want to fuck with me, you fuck with everybody, okay? And if you want to fuck with you, you're going to fuck with me. God, you get it off? How's he doing there? My pleasure, sir. Thanks for coming up, okay? I'm Elaine Grant. I'm Dr. Matt Winia, and this is Hard Call, the podcast that follows true patient stories and asks you to weigh in on some of the most difficult decisions any of us will ever face about our health. At the end of the last episode, we were with Jeff, a successful businessman in New York's garment district. He was just starting a new business, in fact, and a psychiatrist was trying to decide if this man... I got the biggest reputation this industry has ever... I'm rocking the foundation of this world. ...needed to be hospitalized. Or if his wife was just mad at him. Because she only talked about the money. He gave away 100000 I said, okay, so people lose millions. You know, it's only money. I mean, like I said, did he hurt you? Did he, uh, did he threaten? Did he, did he feel unsafe or whatever? I mean, okay, that I could see if you attacked her or whatever. No, it seemed to be about the money. After some fairly erratic behavior, uh, but maybe not behavior completely unheard of in his business, Jeff had been told by his wife, Nancy, that he was going to marriage counseling. So he shows up with his wife to this appointment with a psychiatrist. He stomps around her office, railing about how his wife isn't contributing to their marriage, how he's doing everything. He's even taking kickboxing, which he then demonstrates in the psychiatrist's office. And at this point in the last episode, we asked you to vote on whether if you were the psychiatrist, you would say he's a danger and that he should be hospitalized against his will 
or not. And recognizing, of course, that we asked you to make that decision with incomplete information. Because that's what really happened. This psychiatrist needed to make a quick judgment with incomplete information. Which is common in these type situations. So in any event, regardless how you voted or whether you wanted more information, it's time for us to tell you what the psychiatrist actually decided. Let's have Jeff say what happened next. The next thing I know, she said, uh, could you excuse me? And then two police officers came in and said, Mr. Zen, could you please come with us? And I said, why? And they said, well, it's the opinion of your doctor and your wife that you need to be hospitalized. And my heart fell to my stomach. And we walked across the street because it was right across the street. And I actually had talked one of the police officers into believing that it was my ex. And he went back there and talked to the doctor, and she said, no, it's him. And they took me into this um, hospital where they strapped me to a gurney. They wanted to shoot me up with medication, and I wanted to refuse. So Jeff was involuntarily hospitalized for... Only five days. He was released with a diagnosis of bipolar disorder type 1, including mania with psychotic features. Maybe now's the time to say a bit more about what exactly that means. Right. So let's break this bipolar diagnosis down a bit. To get a diagnosis of bipolar type 1, you have to have at least one manic episode that lasts at least a week. Wait. People with bipolar disorder don't just have mania, do they? I mean, this is bipolar disorder. So there are two poles, manic on one end and I assume depressed on the other. By the time people get this diagnosis, they'll have had periods of major depression, too, right? So in general, that is true, and that's why bipolar disease is also called manic depressive illness. But it turns out not everyone has depression first. In fact, about a quarter of people diagnosed with bipolar 1 start right off with a manic episode, and that might have been the case with Jeff. Okay. So when you say manic, I think of someone with very high energy, a a whirling dervish. Maybe a pain to be around, but maybe even someone who's really productive. But that can't be what manic actually means in the clinical sense, can it? Actually, it sort of is, but not exactly. So uh, here, I've got the Bible of psychiatric diagnoses here, the DSM-5. So I can read exactly what it says. And it starts by saying a manic episode is, I'm quoting, a distinct period of abnormally and persistently elevated expansive or irritable mood and abnormally and persistently increased activity or energy. So that general statement sounds sort of like what you describe, but then they go on to say this high energy episode has to be severe enough that it causes marked impairment in social or occupational functioning, or else it has to include what they call psychotic features. Psychotic means basically a mind disconnected from reality. So psychotic features would include hallucinations, for example, like you would see in schizophrenia. But it also includes some of the specific features that they list as necessary to make a diagnosis of bipolar 1. And it's this list of features, that's where you really see mania is not just being a little bit hyper. So what are those features? Let's go through a few one by one. So according to DSM-5, a manic episode includes at least three of the following things. 
inflated self-esteem or grandiosity. I'm gonna win every fucking award there is, okay? Because I'm coming, and I'm coming in all fucking directions. I'm coming on the fucking video. I'm coming in television. I'm coming on the website. I'm coming at you so hard, you don't know what's to do about it. A decreased need for sleep. I'm working, you know, and not sleeping. I'm working, you know, 18 hours a day. I'm sleeping maybe two. Being more talkative than usual or a pressure to keep talking. This is called pressured speech. And it actually can include this fascinating condition called echolalia which is a tendency to not only speak fast, but sort of sing song sounds, rhymes, or to repeat words and sounds over and over again. Come and catch me. You can't catch me. Nobody can keep up with me. You hear me? I can talk faster than anybody I know. I got the jive. I got the mime. I got the dive. We getting ready to do this thing now. Even without a recap. We ain't going to need no recap. We're going to vote one time. And you know who's going to win? Jeff Zinn. Because it's win with Zins and Zins and Zins It's Tarzin.aol. It's Zin. It's Lou Zin. It's amazing. It's Anna Zin. You got a headache, I'm going to give you one. It's called Anna Zin. You want to give me shit, I'm going to come at you with a rope. It's called Tarzin. Next is flight of ideas or racing thoughts. We're building a fashion company. We're building a film company. We're building a white company. We're building a fucking artist company. We're building all kinds of companies. Then there's distractibility where a minor external issue will suddenly pull the person's attention away. I kept coming to New York, the biggest city in the world. You know what they say, if you can make it New York, you can make it anywhere. Well, I made it New York and that fucking noise is killing me. You hear me, that fucking noise, they won't stop that fucking noise. And I made it in New York City. Next, people with mania can have an increase in goal-directed activity, or else they can have what's called psychomotor agitation which is basically purposeless activity. So Jeff was having both of these. He was starting a new business, working on it 24-7, so that's goal-directed activity. But he was also talking about lots of other types of activities at the same time. And all my friends and all the people that I know are coming after you because we don't want it anymore. We don't want your fucking scum. We don't want your shit. We don't want your fucking behavior. You hear me? All we want is goodness. All we want is giving. All we want to do is sharing. That's what we're about. You better get that message quick because it's coming at you with the power of God. Finally, people with mania will often have excessive involvement in pleasurable activities that have a high potential for painful consequences. So that would be things like going on a buying spree or acting out sexually or making foolish business investments. And yeah, am I crazy? Am I really crazy? I'm possessed. I'm possessed by God. Because once I opened up the heart, once I gave that $100,000, which you make tenfold, and I'm going to keep giving, and I'm going to keep giving, and every day I'm giving. Today I gave $10 to this person, 20% of that, 30 to this person. I give to everyone, and it ain't going to stop. It ain't going to stop till either I'm broke or I'm the richest man in the universe. And by the way, since Jeff mentioned this, it isn't on the formal list of criteria for mania, but it's really common among people in a manic state to think they have a special connection to God or to the divine. And then the other thing the DSM doesn't really mention is this. The feeling of mania is the best there is. There's nothing like it. It feels superhuman. So I counted seven criteria there, but you only need three to make the diagnosis. But Jeff probably had all seven. Maybe eight, if you include the I'm possessed by God thing. So by the book, he clearly had mania? Yeah, that's right. And, and that's why he got the diagnosis of bipolar one. But still, when we asked Jeff about this just recently. I do not believe that the psychiatrist that I dealt with saw enough 
to make a determination because I only spoke for a minute. And she made the determination where she called the police officers. And Jeff's not the only one who felt that way. That's why I was so surprised, you know. And I had talked to his wife about it. Uh, you know, I called her and I said, what's going on? You know, why, why did Jeff get arrested? And she says, well, you know, he gave $100,000 to charity and just gave it away. And, uh, you know, that's crazy. You know, I said, yeah, but that's no reason to put put a guy in, in, in the hospital and have him arrested because, you know, he, he gave away money or whatever, you know. Um, I just couldn't see it. I said, is he dangerous? Has he attacked you or hurt you? Or... She says, no, but I think he's dangerous for, myself, to, for himself. And the doctors at the time felt that that would be best. I didn't know why they didn't just put him on medication. I don't know. I, to this day, I just don't get it. And now we're going to take just a quick pause. We'll come right back to our story. I'd like to thank one of our generous funders, the Colorado Health Foundation. The foundation is singularly focused on helping Coloradans live their healthiest lives by advancing opportunities to pursue good health and achieve health equity through grant making, policy and advocacy, strategic private investments, and convening to drive change. For more information, please visit www.coloradohealth.org. And now, back to Derailed. So I'll bet you're wondering what the actual psychiatrist has to say about this. Yeah, but you're also probably thinking she'll never talk. Uh, This is very private information. But that's an amazing part of this story. My name is uh, Dr. Gabriela Centurion. I'm a psychiatrist in New York. Years later, Jeff actually sat down to interview his psychiatrist. He interviewed her in the third person, as though they were talking about someone else. And, well, she did remember the situation a little differently. When I I first met Jeff, I had received a phone call from his sister, and she had explained to me that she thought her brother was manic. What, um appeared clear from the beginning was that he needed to be hospitalized. My understanding was going to the psychiatrist to have marriage counseling, and my wife was going to be there what she was. So nothing ever uh, was relayed to me to not believe that until two police police (laughs) walked in and said, please come with us. I never understood for a second that anything was different than that because she asked me what's going on and my question, or I mean my answer to her question was totally relevant to my understanding of why we're there. Here's what's going on. I'm doing everything and she's doing nothing. That's what's going on. So it had nothing to do with me trying to defend my sanity. It could have been a whole different scene if she would have said, Jeff, the reason you're here is because there's beliefs that you're breaking down or having a you know, mental crisis, could you discuss that? And you better believe I would have had a whole different demeanor, I believe. I would have definitely calmed down and said, oh, that's interesting, I thought we were here. You know, I think I had a pretty good control. If you watch the video, I can go, I was going from mania to pretty, pretty relaxed, pretty quickly. You're an actor. Yeah, and I am an actor in the moment. So, 
You know, I, I don't believe, I don't, will never know, but I answered the question. Yeah, which incidentally is one of the tremendous ethical dilemmas that psychiatrists sometimes face because you want the client, the patient, to be able to be completely open and honest with you, including about the most, you know, depressing, dangerous, scary things that they are thinking. And yet, if they say those things out loud, it puts an onus on you to decide, well, are they just venting to me? And right. So the reason you said these things, I presume, is because, A, you thought you were there for marriage counseling mm-hmm. and B, you thought you could trust her. Totally. That I've... you could be angry in front of her. And it, that's what you were there for right. was to express your anger and frustration. Totally. So you walked in the door ready to express your anger and frustration about your marriage. By the way, I assume in an attempt to save your marriage. You probably wouldn't have gone to marriage counseling if you thought there was nothing to be gained from it. I would agree. And I would have to be honest with all with all of you that this is the first time I really even realized that this is what really happened. Is I went in there believing I was there for marriage counseling and answered the question exactly as we just said. So it's still a dilemma whether or not Jeff should have been hospitalized but he was. And five days later, he's out of the hospital. He's got an official diagnosis and a lot of medication. He perceived that medication was making him flat, as if he were losing his personality. I think medication allowed him to be the person that he is, really. Um, Ideally, we treat the symptoms, and then you can see the person. I don't know who I am anymore. You know, am I this guy on medication? You know, my my this guy on antidepressants and lithium, and I can't even throw a softball. I tried to throw a softball to my kids, and it went 100 feet, and they were, you know, like 20 yards. I couldn't bowl. I used to be like 180. I couldn't even bowl 100. I couldn't golf anymore. I couldn't do anything. I was done. And this just, you know, it, it just really shocked me how much of this medication could affect me to be that convinced that I was going to have such an incredible life at the height of my life to then be told I'm insane was was a shock it was traumatic and I think that's that was the recognition and that there was the illness but there was also the recognition that some of it had to be me you know but it as as time progressed those lines became foggier. Like we said, Jeff spent five days in the hospital. When he gets out, he goes immediately back to his beloved showroom. But nothing feels like it had before. And on top of dealing with his medications and coming to terms with his diagnosis, Jeff feels crippled by stigma. I remember sitting in a chair freaking out. You know, my stomach was turning, my head was spinning. So I would go into this circular thought of now I'm crazy, now I'm insane. Now my kids won't, you know, love their father. Look what I've done to the family. Look how my friends are looking at me. They all think I'm nuts. How what how am I going what am I going to do to survive? How am I going to get through all these, you know, horrible futuristic and past thoughts, never in the present. And I would then look at my watch thinking an hour had to go by. 
I mean, I've been in this trance for at least an hour, and I look at my watch one minute. So time stopped, and I couldn't escape this horrible, horrible feeling. And those feelings, well, they happened at work, too. Even though he's been out such a short time that hardly anybody knows where he was, he's really worried about the reactions of his friends and colleagues. So right away, he has to decide who he's willing to tell about his mental illness. And there, there were a few people where he really needed to make a quick decision. After all, he has business associates who are really depending on him. So they have a lot of money in. I would have to say at least a million dollars at, at that point. You need them. You need their money. I needed their money. I needed the production. And we had a contract. You know, so for me to disclose that I just got out of a mental hospital, um, was, you know, a real problem for me. These business partners needed to know. And Jeff was worried if he held out on them and they found out later, then he could be liable. So he told them, and they took the news surprisingly well, but... They felt that if they were going to, you know, stay, they wanted to have somebody watching me. They decided to hire a COO to keep an eye on Jeff and make sure he wasn't being reckless. So Jeff has cleared his biggest hurdle. Or so he thinks. Jeff also wants to tell some of his biggest customers about his illness because... The biggest reason was is that I was not the same person. My personality, at least in my mind, had changed dramatically. And I knew or I felt I would be asked, what's wrong, Jeff? And the other reason was is I was friends with a lot of them. And because of that, I, I felt the need to share this incredible experience that I had had that I thought could, could even possibly get us closer. Holding a lie while you're sitting across from somebody selling them, they would have picked up on something. And that's not what you want to happen in, in a, you know, hour-long at least presentation. It, it comes across as... Something's phony here. Something's not right. So this strikes me as possibly just the kind of decision that the investors brought that COO in to prevent. Uh, Telling a buyer about your recent mental illness and involuntary hospital stay seems like it, it could very easily cost you that customer's business. As it turns out, this is exactly what happened. Jeff's COO thinks the idea of telling customers about his illness is a horrifying idea. We talked about it a lot, and he was quite concerned that this would ruin us. So interesting. The the person you most worried about disclosing to was the business partner, who then said, well, we're okay. We're going to keep moving. We believe you can still be successful. But don't you dare tell anyone else, because those people hold a stigma that would, that would you know prevent them from wanting to move forward with the business, which is very interesting because, of course— it's basically saying, well, I don't think that this precludes us from having a business relationship, but I am worried that other people would preclude a business relationship based on this. Their point of view really was, uh, you know, one of concern for the company and and one for their own jobs and very much part of stigma. You know, they thought that everyone would would be afraid, you know, that that if they did stay with us, that I wasn't stable, that I could leave. 
and that the company wasn't stable because I basically was the company. And that was their biggest argument. If, if you go out there and tell them that, you know, you just were in a hospital, how would they believe that you're going to even be here a year from now, you know, after they place their orders, that you won't have another breakdown? It turns out that there was one other thing influencing Jeff's thoughts about this, and that's that he had actually faced issues of stigma before. We learned that his family has a pretty serious history of mental illness, and that had some major effects on his childhood. My mother ended up taking her life when I was 19 years old, uh, which, you know, is quite sad. And I really found that hard to believe because my mother did talk to me about taking her life. But she said she would never do it because of my younger sister, that she wouldn't leave Lisa with my dad. When my mom told me this, it did not occur to me until 40 years later, well, what about me? You know, it it never hit my heart. I just heard the words, but it never hurt like, do I not matter? My dad uh, was a playboy. He was uh, an addict and some, a gambling addict for sure. Big problem with that. He was a ladies' man. Uh, you know, he had numerous affairs. I certainly had my own experiences with him. That, again, now looking back out of back at it, I would find sexually abusive. It taught me a huge lesson. You know, that really to question my perception is not accurate. And I really started reading a lot of books and such and talking through with people to see, you know, about this. Because, you know, here I had this ideation of my father and my mother, you know, even when I was younger, like I had told you, here's the Barbie and Ken of Denver. And they turn out to have a horrible marriage, both of them with their own individual problems far greater than I would ever have given them credit for. What's real? So at this 19, you know, here I am in college, I don't know who I am. Here's Devra, Jeff's older sister, who actually grew up to be a therapist, and she's reflecting on their childhood also. We were all, I suppose, predisposed to have a mental illness from my father's side of the family. Um, my grandmother reportedly had depression. My, her daughter, my aunt, my father's sister, had uh, ECT, shock treatments, in the 50s. Um, She had two daughters, one who was bipolar when, diagnosed as bipolar when lithium first came out in the 60s. And her other daughter was uh, bulimic and bipolar, and um, her sister committed suicide uh, on our side of the family. My mother committed suicide. um, grandmother, her mother committed suicide, so there's cause for concern. So speaking of stigma, Nancy, Jeff's second wife, told him in an interview later, When I finally met Jeff's family, I realized that he wasn't totally honest about really the mental illness that ran in the family. If I'd really known the truth, about all the mental illness, I would have never married him. 
try to tell myself, well, you know, if he had cancer, you know, I wouldn't be so angry. But because it was mentally ill, I, I almost felt like he could help himself or, or how much was it really mentally ill and how much was he scamming me? I never really knew. What would you like to tell other wives and mothers that might help them through traumas that you went through? Get out. Get out. Do not stay. I did no favor to myself by staying. I was a fool. And if I could do it over again, I would have left right after I had him committed. Okay, hang on a second here. We need to take just a quick break to thank one of our funding partners who make this series possible. We'd like to introduce you to an organization we're pretty fond of, Community First Foundation. For more than 40 years, Community First Foundation has been helping donors and nonprofits improve quality of life across Colorado's front range. You may have already heard of the foundation's signature program, coloradogives.org, which has changed the landscape of giving in Colorado. In 2016, coloradogives.org raised almost $34 million on Colorado Gives Day, the largest online giving movement in the state. In 2014, they conducted a community listening tour, and the community identified mental wellness as one of their most important concerns. So their grants now are focused on early childhood mental wellness, improving the systems that support mental wellness, and changing the public perception of mental health and mental illness. And now, back to our story. It's probably not too surprising to hear that Jeff and his ex-wife tell two very different versions of this story. I told her everything. You know, she... She knew the stories. She knew my mother took her life. I don't know if I actually used the word mentally ill. There were no secrets. I, I never had a secret about it. But it wasn't that I didn't know it and didn't tell her. It was just I didn't think to tell her. So it wasn't that you were trying to gloss things over because maybe she wouldn't have married you. No, not in the least. Not in the least. You have to remember, when Jeff started dating Nancy... He didn't know he had a mental illness. So it gets even more complicated when you think about the difference between disclosing your family's history of mental illness, which is the decision he faced when he started dating Nancy, and disclosing his own mental illness, which is the decision he faces with his customers now. And it's the decision he would face later when he started dating the woman who would eventually become his current wife. Who you know, I told on the second date. Uh, the question was, at that point, knowing that I liked her, when is the right time? Did you actually have experiences where you started to date someone and things were going fine and then you disclosed this and they said, you know, on second thought, I think we're going to cut this off? I made it a rule to tell them right away. So, like I said, that I wouldn't be hurt. Um, and if they ran, they ran, you know, which, okay, I can live with that. Uh, and I found that most people did make the decision not to get involved or certainly would be a contributing factor. You do wonder how that, how that relates to um, the way people address men, uh, other illnesses. So is the way that people respond to learning that a 
that a person that they may be interested in has a psychiatric illness or a history of a psychiatric illness versus if they learn that the person that they are starting to fall for has, uh, you know, a serious cancer history, and it may come back. So my specialty is infectious diseases. Uh, Most of my patients for 20 years had AIDS, and we had this kind of conversation about telling your partner. And there, the risk to the partner is, you know, very direct, Um, but not completely unlike the risk that someone might be undertaking in falling in love with and, you know, the, the risk of being hurt. The same risk that you're talking about, but on their side, right? Do I really want to fall for this guy and then have to live with him through the next round of chemotherapy or the next hospitalization for mental illness or, you know, the opportunistic infection and knowing that this person may die before me? All of those questions, I think, arise, both mental illness and physical illness. So now Jeff faces this dilemma again, but how is he going to handle it this time with his customers? To get another perspective, we decided to talk about this with an expert. I am Steve Hinshaw. I'm a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, and a professor of psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco Medical Center. And Dr. Hinshaw has a lot of family history of mental illness himself. Hinshaw has experienced firsthand the negative effects that stigma can have on a person with mental illness, and on their loved ones as well, which he's just written a book about. Yeah, this is my uh, 15th book, and it's the one of which I'm most proud. It's called Another Kind of Madness. Another Kind of Madness isn't a form of mental illness per se. It's the stigma and shame that still all too often surround mental illness. And this other kind of madness, I argue in recounting my dad's and my family's life, is arguably worse than the kind of serious bipolar disorder my dad had or other forms of mental illness other family members had. Because if you can't even talk about it, the doctors ordered when my sister and I were quite young that my father and mother never tell us about dad's disappearances into mental hospitals his serious psychotic disturbance, because we, the children, would have been permanently destroyed. So it's kind of hard to imagine that an oncologist would tell the family, not to mention the parents' cancer. It's that madness, that kind of silencing and stigma, that still give mental illness the the black eye that it too often gets. It's still shameful to admit it. And I try to weave that material in to the family narrative in this book. Even the word stigma has dark origins. So stigma, like so many psychological and psychiatric terms, is Greek in origin. And from the Greek mean, literal meaning of the term, a stigma is a brand or burn mark or visible defacement of the body to signify that you're an outcast. So a brand would be placed on the shoulder or neck or arm of such a person. That's a stigma. Everybody knows you're not part of the mainstream of society. You're degraded. You're an outcast. Now, there are still physical brands. Hitler branded people in concentration camps. Some nations literally branded people who were HIV positive uh, at the outbreak of the AIDS epidemic a few decades ago. But most stigma today is psychological. 
we don't have to do a physical brand, but if we learn that you are dot, dot, dot of a different religion or sexual orientation, or in our case, have had a history of mental illness, everything about you relates to this group you're in. You're not an individual anymore. You're part of an outcast group. And it signifies at its worst, the dehumanization of fellow members of our species. One thing we've heard more than once doing research for this episode is that the stigma surrounding mental illness can often prove to be more harmful than the mental illness itself. If, because of the research that's been done, a person with serious depression or bipolar illness or schizophrenia or post-traumatic stress disorder or child with ADHD or autism spectrum disorders gets diagnosed and gets the right treatment, Treatments for most forms of mental illness today, even though they're not curative, yield larger effects than most treatments you get going to the doctor's office for the physical ailments you have. But if you can't even admit that you've got it, or if you can admit it, but you don't disclose to anyone else, or you're too ashamed to see a therapist, or you don't want to seek the job or relationship because you know you'll get rejected, stigma cuts off your life possibilities despite the fact that if you got the right help, your mental illness could be significantly improved, if not eradicated. So that's why stigma is the rate limiting factor. So that's why I very explicitly say another form of madness and a worse form of madness than mental illness itself is the shame and silence and stigma. Which goes back to what we were talking about with Jeff when he was unsure whether to tell his customers about his illness. And this stigma or this fear of acknowledging mental illness becomes even more of an issue when we realize just how common mental illness is. If you take forms of mental illness that lead to uh, often serious substance abuse or thoughts or actions regarding taking your own life or almost utter inability to work or form relationships, about 5% of the population on any given day has such a severe form of mental illness. That's one in 20. That's nothing to sneeze at. Another 20%, so 5% plus 20%, that's a quarter of the population, experiences a more moderate form of mental illness that you're functioning, but maybe with your agoraphobia, you can't take the elevator above the first or second floor, so it limits your work. Or your post-traumatic stress disorder, whether from a sexual assault or a war experience or a natural disaster, makes it almost impossible for you to, to make it through a day without experiencing flashbacks, uh, having palpitations, uh, all the other symptoms of PTSD. So a quarter of the population is walking around today, often hidden because we don't talk about it, with a serious or moderate to serious form of mental illness enough to lead to pretty clear impairment. And Jeff's concerns about making his mental illness known in his work environment, that's common too. If I have a history of mental illness, you may not know it. I can hide it from you. Unlike if my skin color is different from yours, that's an overt stigma, right? But what happens when something like mental illness is as stigmatized as it is? And I fear that if you found out, there'd be bad consequences for me. What do I do during my interaction? Well, I'm, hmm, do you, have you figured, have you found me out? Is it leaking? 
So when you have a concealable stigma, like a history of mental illness, and you're really trying hard not to let it come out, then maybe your whole interactional style in meeting someone in the job interview gets so colored by your anxiety over this that you end up subverting yourself. It's such a hard decision to make given the current attitudes toward mental illness. Society's not changing very fast in terms of stigma. Americans are more stigmatizing about mental illness than in the 1950s. Even though we know much more as a society about mental illness and the facts of it, psychology courses in high schools, more newspaper articles, we're actually more fearful. But why are the attitudes in this country toward mental illness still so backward? Well, I think part of it is, how does the media portray mental illness? The public face of mental illness is the acts of gun violence and the pictures of, quote, deranged shooters and the fact that it's very hard to get into public mental hospitals right now. We've closed most of them down. So how does most of the public confront severe untreated mental illness on the streets of warm weather cities among the 30 to 40 percent of the homeless population that has chronic mental illness? We, despite some of the reforms we've tried to make, one of the upshots is the public confronts mental illness in its kind of raw, untreated form that only furthers stereotypes. What if we weren't talking about a history of mania and depression and psychosis, but cancer? What did you never have in your obituary 60, 70, 80 years ago that a family member died of cancer? That was shameful. Cancer is a disease you brought on yourself. It was a person who'd given up and the cancer cells take over. Terribly stigmatized. What happens if you turn on the channels a couple of Sundays every fall now? The NFL behemoths are wearing pink knee socks and pink wristbands. The Players' Championship, the final Sunday of the richest golf tournament, the pro golf players are wearing pink shirts. Breast cancer is now a cause. It's not a source of shame. It's not a weakness to admit you have cancer. It's something that you're going to give support and funds for and bolster the, per that the person getting treatment. We're not there for mental illness yet. It's still too mysterious. The behaviors are sometimes scary in psychotic forms. If we could turn the corner the way we have for breast cancer, for mental illness, and say, let's support that person. That person's as human as you or I, coping with maybe some genetic vulnerability, coping with a kind of life stress I didn't have. It's not all in their genes, but it's certainly not a moral flaw. If we can rally support for mental illness and talk about the very human stories behind mental illness, then we're over the halfway point. We're over the hump of eliminating the stigma, getting the treatments out there that are needed, and realizing that so many of us have experienced mental illness in ourselves and families, we're cutting off our society's potential if we keep it buried in shame. Okay, so bottom line, Elaine, does Dr. Hinshaw think it's a good move for Jeff to tell his customers what's been going on? Right, and so this is, of course, a yes-no question, and I, as a professor and academic, am going to hedge at the very beginning. One stance would be, no more stigma, no more shame. Anybody I meet, prospective employer, prospective client, prospective life partner, I'm coming out from the word go. Well, that's an open and in many ways very admirable stance. On the other hand, 
timing and support are everything. Now, under the Americans with Disabilities Act, it is against the law in the United States to discriminate against someone with a physical or mental illness, and that includes the workplace. So it would be okay by law now to tell a prospective employer about your history of mental illness. However, if I don't have the job yet, I'm not employed, and my prospective employer may consciously or unconsciously find ways to exclude me if they think I'm not going to be a good fit for that job. So what some job coaches are going to say is, well, maybe you don't disclose from the word go at that first job interview, but you emphasize your strengths, uh, you get that job, and once you're in it, depending on the size of the organization and is there an employee support division, now you start to disclose and ask for accommodations because you can't ask for the accommodations if you don't have the job in the first place. Now, is that tricking the employer if you didn't disclose at the interview? Well, how related are the characteristics, symptoms, and impairments of your mental illness to the job specs? What many are saying now is, do you have a support group? Have you rehearsed what you might say to the employer or to the client? Are you feeling comfortable enough about it that you don't confess and break into tears because of the recent hospitalization or other experience you've had? Disclosure is really important. We want to be out of the silence that I experienced as a kid growing up in the doctor-ordered silence of our home. Timing and support and titrating your disclosure may be much more important than disclosure, yay or nay, altogether. Now, the concern in this case uh, from a colleague uh, was if you tell our biggest customer, that biggest customer will leave and you are putting the entire company at risk. How true is that? Given what we know, what I mentioned, that stigma has not eroded about mental illness since the silent 1950s, but it may in fact actually be worse. Three times more Americans than in 1955 today believe that mental illness inevitably predicts violence. So the stereotypes are rampant out there. Maybe this uh, sort of warning of doom, the, the client will just bail the second this is disclosed, might be accurate. Depending on what is known about the potential client, how, again, comfortable with and how much coaching uh, this person has received about how to make a disclosure well, I think that's going to tip the scale. That's Dr. Stephen Hinshaw. This is your hard call. If you were Jeff, would you disclose your mental illness and recent hospitalization to your customers or not? On the one hand, Jeff is very recently released from the hospital, and he's on meds that are causing him to question not only his judgment, but even who he is as a person. The chief operating officer who was hired specifically to make sure he doesn't make bad decisions is telling him, no way, do not tell the customers anything. But Jeff wants to be honest, first of all, and he also wonders if being honest could actually benefit their business in the long run by making a stronger personal connection with the customers. Yeah, I have to add, in our research on this episode, um, there are multiple surveys where people say they think it's a bad idea to be in a business or a relationship with someone who has a serious mental illness. And Jeff even admits this, looking back on it now. And yet, still, 
this is one of those decisions where your gut feeling about being honest, that value might actually outweigh the evidence about the risk. So we close with the question we always close with. What would you do? If you were Jeff, would you disclose your mental illness and recent hospitalization to your customers or not? Log on to our website to cast your vote, hardcallshow.org. And remember, you're not voting as yourself, you're voting as if you were Jeff. In our next episode, we'll find out whether Jeff told his customers and what happened next. Thanks for listening to Hard Call. I'm Elaine Grant. Like us on Facebook and Twitter at Hard Call Show and invite your friends to listen and vote. Also, give us a review on iTunes. The more reviews we have, the easier it is for other folks to find the Hard Call podcast. Support for Hard Call Derailed was provided by the Colorado Health Foundation and the Community First Foundation. Hard Call is a production of the University of Colorado's Center for Bioethics and Humanities. It's produced by Elaine Appleton-Grant and me, Dr. Matt Winia. Tyler Hill is our associate producer. Our theme music was composed by Andrew Randall. Other music was composed by Chris McClung. And we received theatrical assistance from Charles Packard, executive producer and director at the Aurora Fox Arts Theater in Aurora, Colorado. The Hard Call Humanities Advisory Board includes Drs. Tess Jones, Philip Joseph, Lisa Karanen, and Abraham Nussbaum. Next time on Hard Call... And one of the reasons he's seeing a psychiatrist in the first place is that he was recklessly spending thousands of dollars. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of ironic, isn't it? Yeah. Would you take a job where somebody is telling you how to practice and what you need to do and is offering you significantly less money than another job? It's, it's not an easy life, but it's a... It's a gift. It's a gift to be able to sit with somebody with mental illness and be their tether between the world of madness and the world of whatever this world is, more or less sanity.